calling you. No, don't call back that much. But there you go. All right. Um, the, the tap dancing was key. That was another relation I had with Earl, because he talks about his early days. Tap dances, mom was in Rodville, and he go out and tap dance. Uh -huh. And uh, on the streets of New Orleans, which oddly I had that experience. So uh -huh. it's another reason one thought. I never did get to the rock and roll misconception, but we'll get there. We'll get there. So um I walked to a kit and played him. And I played him better than most of the guys that were playing him. Uh -huh. So after like talking about it and going, look, man, I can do that. Give me a shot. Give me a shot. And I was real young, too. That was a concern. You know, can we get them in the clubs? Uh, finally, you know, they caved in. Not only because I, I play, I could sing really fucking high. Uh -huh. I was still a kid. Right. Had a hell of a range so I could do a lot of the high harmony parts, which all of those guys taught me how to sing harmony. And all right. right. So that's when it started. Uh -huh. Um. And yes, I walked onto a drum kit and played. Uh -huh. and I started the, playing professionally immediately. Uh -huh. And you enjoyed the gigs. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, I mean, I was getting my comeuppances, you uh -huh. know. I mean, I was learning, getting, you know, slammed by people. No, dude. You know, it's not a break every time that comes around. You know, I, the simple things like that, because I just didn't yeah. know. Learning the arrangements, right? You know. I wouldn't know what a drum note looked like on paper back then. Uh -huh. My life, I had no idea. Right. You know, I mean, uh, like, for instance, my father was opposed to musicians being like a music musical instrument being a real job. Okay. You know, so when I said I was going to take a break before college and and because and, I got this band, he said, what, a rubber fucking band? <laughs> you know, that, that was the, and, and he was very broken hearted. Oh, uh, Jesus, you know, what the fuck? You should have never let that boy fucking, you know, yeah. He was, uh, you know, he was fucked up about it. But, uh. Did he get over that? Right at, after Who Daddy he got over it. <laughs> <laughs> when was Who Dad? 83, 84. 83, 84. Long time ago. Okay, mm -hmm. then he liked that. That's interesting. Mm -hmm. So, at what point, so you were in New Orleans, but you were. You were in New Orleans playing, so then the whole time, so you're a young teen, a teenager now, and then this, you're playing these kind of shows for how long? Oh, I played, I was still dabbling in the show band thing. Uh, not so much the orchestra pit anymore. By the time I was like um, 17, it was a very, a band I was attracted to that played like kind of hard edge rock, like cover band stuff like uh -huh. Bad Company but like Beck Bogart and the Peace you know and, uh, Baker Gurritt's Army and shit like that okay. they, they were they were uh, drawing pretty good houses we had a thing called 101 Live Night down here hmm we had a radio station would go to a club pick a local band they like wire it up and send it across the radio uh huh and that's where all the kids went. So, being young and cocky, I said, I'm going to get in one of those bands that draws a lot of people and does that. And that's when, with Gary Hurstis and, you know, Felix the Light Man and Tipitinas. Yeah. He was the light man for that band. Little wow, Brooklyn. that early on. Yeah. Okay. And so I was like 18 then. Uh-huh. But I was still, you know, like, 
I turned 18 in Phoenix, Arizona on a road with a show band because of some strip bar with a guy with a lot of money in Florida. He put us on a road. He handpicked out of all of these bands the guys he wanted, uh-huh. not knowing I was underage, but I was one of the guys he wanted. And oddly, in this that show band outfit, I was not a drummer. I was lead singer. Really? Yeah. Standing was, there in the front, wearing a lead singer. Choreography, wearing lettered sweaters and huh. greasing my hair, doing a Bobby Darren bit. You know, wow, that wow. whole thing. Yeah. Wow, wow. So then, uh, okay, that was 18, and then you were already on the road. That was the first, that was the beginning of the road. Yeah. And then I found out, in, I was in, uh, in uh, Boise, Idaho, when I found out one of the guys in the band who I considered a friend, he was from New Orleans, had stolen something from me. Doesn't matter what, but he had stolen some equipment from me. And the guy who owned the band, because we were on salary, uh-huh. you know, I was young, man. I was homesick. You right. know, I didn't know anything about being on a tour bus, living with all these guys. So I, <clears throat> I was thinking about going home, and this this guy, this a, a guy I thought was a friend that had stolen from me, said. I understand. Let's go back to New Orleans. We'll put together something there. We were making just as much money anyhow. It's not as hard. And this guy who owned the band has leverage to get me to stay. Told me, he goes, yeah, you know, don't go with him because he stole this thing. And I just went, you're a fucking asshole. Hmm. You're ratting the guy out now. You should have told me because it's the right thing to freaking do. So I just like that night got on a plane at like 18 and a couple of months uh-huh. and flew back and I called my mom and dad can you send me a fucking plane ticket uh-huh. my checks you know, I'm not going to have it to the end of the week you know and uh, I flew back to New Orleans uh-huh. and that's when I got in with Gary and then with Little Brooklyn but I had already been hanging out and seeing them with other drummers I see and eventually I just was going to stick around long enough till they hired me okay and how was that band working in New Orleans real good what kind of shows was what is that what did that mean then? Well we were all very young. We weren't trying to change the face of the music industry. We were all just trying to make a couple of dollars. Right. And, you know, during the Carter administration and, you know, later Reagan and all. You know, like a, a lot of my friends had complained. You know, like have been complaining throughout my life about the music business, how they can't make any money. That's never been my story. Uh-huh. You know, I've, I've, it's been very kind to me. Yeah, that's great. And so, I, I think of it a lot on a monetary level, and I'm learning how to play stuff because I'm not the guy that's going to grab a record and study it and figure something out. But if I got to play the fucking song, like it could be in somebody else's music, I want it to be. You know, I believe songs are sacred. Uh-huh. You know, and at least try to get in their head and in the mindset of what they might have been thinking or what kind of angle they were going at, or how comfortable they were or uncomfortable mm-hmm. when they were doing it. You know, I mean, like, you know, Munch Jones, you know, I mean, I think there's as much beauty in his comfort, his sloppy hi-hat shit. with that Munch he, Jones? He, uh, uh, with uh, Miles Davis, okay. drummer. I think there's as much beauty in that you know, and the comfort and, you know, his angle with that half-open hi-hat uh, all the uh, time, uh, like on decoy and shit like that, uh, th- that there is with uh, 
you know, like an adolescent punk rock drummer. That's everything's tight. Right. Uh-huh. You know, and, and it's like, you know, when you're doing that stuff, if you don't emulate that tension, uh-huh. it doesn't sound it doesn't the same. Sound right, uh-huh. So you got to do that in your body. Yeah. You know, uh, so part of that's getting in their head and seeing their discomforts in, in, uh, in where they're comfortable. You know, it's like, um, it's like wearing a mask, uh-huh. but you learn a lot, you know. So what about this? You said you think songs are sacred. What's, what's up with that? Well, I was just going a little further. Um, no, I'm just backtracking, I realize. Mm-hmm. If you want to go further. No, I was just going a little further by saying those tensions. When you're playing in that cover kind of world like I was as a kid, uh-huh. I thought it was very important that you deliver it with the same angst, or at least, you know, in nature, yeah. it'd be the same song. Even if you're not playing the same licks or notes right. always. But do, you, do you still feel that way? I absolutely do. In uh-huh. fact, there's certain songs that when people want to cover them, I roll my eyes like, no, it was perfect. Yeah. Why would you want to do that? That motherfucking song was perfect. Right. Why would you attempt that? Uh-huh. Sometimes it's a, you know, big uh, Gershwin piece. Uh-huh. Sometimes it's a fucking Kinks. Right. You know, it's like, you know, when it's been done as best as it possibly can, why? Uh-huh. You know, it's like, you know, like uh, hypothetically, Aerosmith doing Come Together. You know, there's people that only know Aerosmith very just like, I'm sorry. It's like a bad emulation of the Beatles doing it. Yeah, yeah. You know? And what's the point? Right. Yeah, we got nothing. I get it. I agree with that totally. What's brought me to your place? That's how I eventually came to the place of what's the point of doing these other people's songs? Yeah. I mean, that happened young. Yeah. Some people, it never happens to. Ah, yeah. I agree. You know, I do it, and I know exactly what it's for. Sometimes it's to just put a, you know, pay a car note. Yeah. But the the thing for me is, like, I, I can't, I wish I could tell you who it, it might have been Billy Gregory or somebody I was playing when I was real young. You know, somebody, you know, it's like I was like, wow, you did that and you did this. It might have even been Zig. I don't even know. I can't remember who it was, but somebody said, I said, how come you don't, you know, you don't play any other, ever play any cover bands? And they said, uh, nah. I said, why? And they said, those guys ain't out playing my songs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's like a point. <laughs> you know, it's like, and then, you know, you start learning about money in the mail. And it's like, well, I think I can write a song. Uh-huh. And then you do it, and it's like, oh, I love that song. And it's all it takes, you know. Yeah, One person like, saying, like, yeah, that's great. So, uh, so that that when did you when did you say you started writing? When did that start? Oh, I was doing it already, uh-huh. but I didn't think much of it. And uh, oddly, I was in a band. My elder brother was in the band, and because we love each other, I decided I would leave the band because <laughs> he was like working his way to a doctorate in music. Okay, wow. But. Nobody listened to him. Uh-huh. You know, like when yeah, I spoke, like that. yeah, it was really weird. Uh-huh. And uh, he needed the gig worse than me because uh-huh. every I got gigs, right. and he didn't get as many gigs. Yeah. So uh, it was like, uh, I'm gonna buy out, Jerry, because we're gonna kill each other. 
in this outfit, you know. And he's like, got a guy, bottle it up. And then we get out of the rehearsal, and he's like, man, you don't even know what you're fucking talking about, man. And they won't fucking listen to me. This is, you know, like, I'm like, dude, there's a rule book for this shit? You know? I didn't know of any rule book. So anyhow, I had been writing songs. So I leave that band. He soon after leaves that band. But it was like, you know, that hideous thing where you do mostly covers. But the only songs that were written by anybody were written by me. Uh-huh. And it was like five or six songs, right? Uh-huh. These motherfuckers entered t- two of the songs into this local songwriting contest. Uh-huh. And the grand prize is like, you know, a day in the studio with Alan Tucson. And I win. Uh-huh. And they don't even fucking tell me about it. Oh wow! Yeah. <laughs> I had to, I had to wait until somebody left the band in a resentment kind of environment. Uh-huh. And he goes, "Yeah, you know what they did too." I'm like, "Y'all did what?" Still haven't heard a recording of it. <laughs> but that was like, now I got to find out in Tucson, right? Uh-huh. And I remember like you know an early conversation with. Dave talking out, so I'm like, can you get, I got some songs, I want to get them now in Tucson, I understand you like one of my songs, he kept saying, you know, all the things I thought about the band, like my buddy Lenny was telling me he would go, it's a real good song, just stay away from the song, and, and, and Lenny was like, saying, oh, he wouldn't give us any advice, I'm like, well, that's advice right there, uh-huh. you know, and he goes, and all he did was like kind of you know, do this in the room. Like, you know, he was just going through the measures because he promised him he'd do it for this contest. I was like, that's great. Yeah. He's, he's you know, I mean, for years I produced by standing in the room with the band shaking my ass. <laughs> yeah. I go, I want to dance like this to it, you uh-huh. know, or whatever. Uh-huh. And then, um, anyhow, so I get poisoned on the idea of getting to Alan from Dave Torkinowski because I said I got these songs I think they're great and I think Alan would really like them he goes well let me get this straight you got a great song and you want to play it for Alan yeah yeah. Uh-huh. there was that reputation still pretty thick back then uh-huh. and uh, so I was like really I shouldn't he's like you know, so David had already been working with Alan for a long time. I guess he had worked with him I don't know if he'd been working with him a long time and it might have been David talking through his hat uh-huh. You know, I don't know. Right. We're just all kids. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, we're fucking puppies, man. Yeah. We don't know the business. We don't know anything about it. Interesting. So you'd known Dave for a long time? Oh, yeah. Uh, I was... I was still a teenager uh-huh. when I met him. And he was already out playing, too? Oh yeah, he was. He's he's a couple of years older than me. He was already in Tyler's Beer Garden. Oh okay. He was like, he was already there. Right. I mean, after Project was already playing. They were already there. Okay, well, all right. Okay. Dude, they've always been. Uh huh. <laughs> you know? yeah, 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 that's interesting. So and uh, so you you bought you bypassed the Alan Toussaint. Uh, oh yeah, yeah, I skipped that. But you you got to realize too, man. Like, through that one band I was talking about, with Gary and KBB, Keith Woodrow, and um, Ken Faulkner, who was a direct descendant of William Faulkner. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty cool. Yeah. 
uh, we had this thing initiated where if you left the band, you lost your interest in the PA system and sound lighting system. Okay. And everybody, everybody that had a band that was worth the fuck had not only a PA system, they had a big one. Uh-huh. They had a nice one. Big rig. Nice okay. lighting company. And you had three roadies. Uh-huh. You know, wow. Uh, you know, two two guys that ran around. Just doing sound, local stuff. Doing local stuff. Everybody had it. Wow. You had a equipment truck. Wow. So there was money. Oh, kind of was good. Yeah. $50 was a lot of money to make on a gig. We're charging three dollars a head, and you got kids all the way out to the street. Yeah, yeah, uh-huh. right. You know, we make enough money to buy our cocaine, take some home, pay our <laughs> car note. Yeah. Now we're driving a four fifty five Formula. Uh huh. You know, new. Yeah. That was like one of the first cars I ever bought. Like, so what? What year was this? Like, I'm just trying to get in my. Little head. Brooklyn would be. Uh, I got in there in like seventy nine. Seventy nine. Yeah, times were good, man. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know? And then you got the radio, you know, fucking put pumping you through the airways so kids are driving around listening to their radio. Uh-huh. And they go, oh, man, they sound good. Let's go. Uh, yeah, they they turn go right their wheel. Next thing you know, they got police on the block going, yeah, you know, clear the streets. Yeah. Clear, you know, and they're all trying to get into the joint you're playing. Uh-huh. Not a bad environment. No. You know, and if you're Exciting. lucky, you, yeah, you landed on one-on-one live maybe every six weeks. You uh-huh. know, they pick you again. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. We had Great. such a good time with y'all last night. Of course, you know, give the DJs cocaine, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Let them hang out in the green room. Wow. Bring them some finger sandwiches. Uh-huh. Get friends for life. Yeah, that's it. Uh, how, you, how you get by in the music business. So, uh, and then that can, but you went to L.A. at a certain point. Yeah. So what pulled you out there? Well, that's um. What year was that? That's interesting. Well, first of all, it was right. It was right after Who Dat, which was eighty three, eighty four season. Was Who Dat? Okay. And um, did you record that with a particular band, or did you just come up with that yourself? Were you already recording your own stuff then, or what was going on? I know you do that too. So I had a friend that was over at UNO. And, I, and trying to get me into, uh, you know, like the engineering aspect of like electronics. Like, man, you know, he was like, this is how I learned all my stuff. Wally Vico. He worked at Fairgrounds for years as the engineer. And he's like at UNO, and he would basically, everything he learned every day, you know, he'd come back and like get all excited and tell me about what he learned. And I'm like, I'm a pretty sharp kid. Uh-huh. So I just started copying. Now, now, let me back up a second. Everybody left that band, and I was the last standing member, so I ended up with the truck PA Analytes. Oh, okay. That was my first business. All right. You know, I was, was a, I was a sound and lighting company that ended up with, like, the Jimmy's account uh-huh. and all of the accounts when I was a kid. And that led to the next thing, which started like this. The recording studio aspect. I already knew audio since you know I was there at the beginning. Sure, vocal masters. The, when Terry Kane made his first console, which was a revolutionary console, had 16 inputs and 
any, any one of those inputs were assigned to a sub, and each of the four subs had equalization on them. Okay. Not the channels, uh-huh. each of the four subs. And there was a switchable attenuator okay. from plus four to minus ten. So you could put the mic good and close. Yeah, yeah, which was like revolutionary. So, so I was always there. Uh, You know, it was like, wow, look what we can do now. You know, so I'm watching the industry grow. You know, from being at its lowest common denominator. You know, like a minute ago we were transistors, and then there was like discrete circuitry, and then the bat of an eye that was bubble logic. Then it was by digital logic. You know, so I mean, I was always there. So I gained some understanding of it from being there at the ground floor. Uh-huh. Um, so what was the question you had? Well, we, you know, I, maybe I jumped too far. We were, we were in 1978, and then I was like we, asking you how you ended up in L.A. Because so I know you did. Okay. All right. Well, the first recordings I did, we started pounding pavement, me and some friends of mine. And we'd, go, we'd literally go walk into the joint and go, hey, we write jingles. We're trying to make money. All right. We go, we write jingles for businesses. We give you a 15-second spot, a 30-second spot, a 60-second spot with places for voiceovers of music made tailor-made for your business. If you like lyrics, we write the content into the lyrics. And, and, uh, and one of them, St. Germain, still runs. Still runs all these years later. Uh, Kenny Vincent, Southside. Uh, Ruby Reds, you know, these are all accounts that we got from just being kids uh-huh. walking into businesses with a clipboard. I was uh-huh. like, hey, don't forget the clipboard. Uh-huh. You know, make you look official, you know. And we would charge a flat rate with no advertising, like Frickies and a few other people in town uh-huh. and uh, Lamar Berry and all that. They were pissed at us. Because uh-huh. we were just like nailing account after account. And we were like, we didn't care that we were only getting 2500 a piece. Because yeah. we're borrowing two Otari A-tracks from UNO. Okay. From, the, from that department and making money with them, which is what stopped us. That's what ended up why I had to get a studio. Okay. Because they realized that we were competing with local business with a with the university. university yeah, gear. And with university gear. Uh-huh. So you did get your own studio? Yes. I didn't know that. Okay, yes. so I knew That was like, with Houdat, for years I'd been hearing, you know, the, the, the sort of cascade that, that St. Aug had was the snare. Tap, 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 and bop, and bop, tap, tap, and bop, bop, tap, tap. And there were the knights, right? Uh-huh. And, uh, and the line was, Houdat talking about beating those who that talking about beating those knights, who that, who uh-huh. that. I, but it was just, and it was like when they were giving the band a break, you know, like, you know, it was just the drummers would do that and they'd, they'd sing, you know, when they were uh-huh. shaking out their horns and shit. Uh, well, uh, but they were the coolest band in town, let's yeah. face it, at the time, uh-huh. you know. And uh, I had forgotten entirely about it. And, uh, Later, it came back. So anyhow, the reason I'm establishing all of that, because that's that's one night I turn on the TV and saying I was going to play the state championship. You had asked me earlier about how that came about, which is how the studio came about. So I see this commercial, and then like, you know, it's like lightning hit me and my friend at the time, who I still consider him a friend. You know, he's 
not my cup of tea, but you know, he never did anything to really hurt me. Uh-huh. You know, Steve Monastery, who was my partner, did that. And the way he became a partner is this: I just, I immediately, I saw this thing on the news, and it was they were on board St. Og's bus, uh-huh. and the guys talking, the news anchor, and you hear in the background, "Who that and talking about and beating them?" And I'm like, I just, I was like, I was digging the groove, uh-huh. you know. And my phone rings, and it's Steve, and he goes, are you listening to TV right now? Do you have a TV? You know, are you close to a TV? I'm like, yeah. He goes, put on the news. I'm like, I'm watching it. He goes, you hear that? And I was like, yeah, I hear it. You think you could write something to, <laughs> to uh, go with that? I said, I got it already. Because we both were spinning at the same time. Because this is all we get. This is, you know, like, he had the ad agency with his studio, Uh which ended up being part of When he went crazy with Who That and, like, started, like, trying to take charge and all, my way of getting out was to get his studio because he had one pre-existing. Already gone. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I said, I already got it. He said, we're going to incorporate Who That. This, this chant with when the Saints go marching and I said I'm gonna make it quicker and vicious it's fucking vicious I got it I, I don't know whether I really had it or not but I told him that on the phone you know and I grabbed my guitar and just you know and I knew what tempo who that saying I wanted and a lot of the like lyrical differences is because I didn't have it in my head good enough when they were doing who that talking about uh huh you know the who that say that was my interpretation of how black say hey, who does say you know uh-huh. you know that was my interpretation right. which ended up me in deep shit with the school board oh wow. oh yeah I was getting hate mail from school how could you do this to our kids you you know wow. I, in fact it was great because I got this letter and it's like how can you do this to our kids and it's like I got news for you I'm fucking twenty one. Uh, I'm 22. I'm one of your fucking kids. I came out of your public school uh-huh. system. You know? Okay. And this is what I heard. You know? yeah. Never got another response. Uh-huh. But, uh, you know, all hell broke loose. Uh-huh. And, you know, like, the third game after it came out, Monday Night Football, it was still on uh, the orange shirts. CBS, I think. And, uh, you know, whatever the music was, and Howard Cosell, first words out of his mouth, who that say they're going to, me and Steve were sitting next to each other, we looked at each other, wow. we better get to the phone. Uh-huh. <laughs> and, you know, then it was just crazy, it went all over the world, we were licensing people to make stuff, it just went fucking berserk. Wow. You know, I went from having a phone at my house to having, like, Five little school desks with phones, girls answering. Wow. You know, wow. coming over my house every day, shipping out baskets all over the world, which was basically who that champagne, a t shirt, a 45, you know, just whatever we were selling licenses. Do you still to. get some kind of royalties from this? No, I sold it all. Sold everything. I, I was embarrassed by it. Oh, okay. I was embarrassed by it. Uh, what, and then. Uh-huh. When was that? When did you sell it? Oh, I sold it like. Two years after we see, this is the deal. I wanted that studio, and there were some other things. I wanted. You said, How did I end up in LA? Yeah, a guy he's dead now, Ben Delgadillo. Uh-huh. 
one of the things I did is I had an old four track around. You see, there's a lot too much. Where was your studio? Let me just get. Oh, it's on Bienville. On Bienville. Uh, you, you know where Sound City? You know, you do you were you here early yeah. enough to, to know where uh, Stony Studio was? No, that I okay. don't. Okay, there was a building just off Carrollton, maybe a block and a half, and it had Sound City, and it had a little narrow part going down the side of it, and and that was First Take Studio. That was okay. my studio, yeah, and I and. I literally, literally, when Ben, when the Ben thing started happening with Outside Children, this three-piece I played, which is what got me to LA, I literally just shut the doors and told a bunch of people I knew that well, audio has us to do. I got sand in the floor. It's isolated. It's got wiring in the wall. Rent that motherfucker from Shahari. Just go get the room. And this guy, Stoney, went in there and kept it running for... 15, 20 years. Oh, wow. Something like that. Uh. And then finally, they tore the building down, the whole strip mall. It was like an L strip mall. And Sound City was here, which was a you know, pretty advanced uh, music store. Uh -huh. And then on the side of it, insulated from that, but their offices were up against the sidewall of, of First Take, and it went down halfway until to a photo lab. Uh -huh. So uh, it was a narrow, long studio. So what kind of stuff were you recording in there? Advertising. Just advertising. Wow. Mostly advertising. Well, you know, there, there was funny moments where, like, um, you know, I get a call one morning. Yeah, this is Zero King. Who am I talking to? Carlo Nucia. How much you charge down there? I'm like, you know? But I knew Zig already, you know? I knew Leo from the Club Sands days, you know, which is a whole nother... Era, uh -huh. and um, I, I'm like, how much? I really didn't have any scope because I do all packages where I'd sell. You know, I just was doing my own thing. I'd get the talent in there to do, like I said, an ad for somebody. Uh -huh. So I said, um, I don't know. I said, how's fifteen dollars an hour sound? I didn't want to run them off. Uh -huh. He goes, okay. That was the end of the conversation. The next morning, I pull up there to go do some voiceovers for a jingle, you know. See, that was the thing. I contract myself in for the voiceover section of all the commercials. Uh -huh. They had to pay me every hourly rate every uh -huh. time I did a voiceover for uh -huh. one of the businesses, their sale for that week. And I contracted myself. That was the hitch after the 2500 initial sale of the jingle. You've uh -huh. got to use me uh -huh. until I no longer want to do it. All right. Uh, I pull up to go do this voiceover, and Earl's standing in the parking lot. Cut out back shoe. And I said, you, what do you need? You want to book some time? He goes, well, I got the band showing up. $15 an hour, right? And I'm like, you know, the next thing I know, I'll look over, and Leo's pulling up. You know, I'm like, you know, I'm like, what the fuck, man? You know, Leo's just coming to hang, and then Zig shows up. He knows I got drums there already because uh, <laughs> we, you know, he'd been over there a couple right. times. But uh, so, you know, I'm like, well, look, I got something I gotta do. Uh, and he's like, he, you know, like it didn't even occur to him that you got to book studio time. Uh huh. You know, he thought you just get like a store, you just go in and buy. Go in, yeah. <laughs> so I was really as long as he'd been in the music business. I, well, think about it. I mean, this is the early think, 80s. What? But think about it. Think about it. 
when he did a recording, he was called in. It's like, let's get together in the studio. He'd go there and he'd do it. This guy was never, there was, like Earl Palmer said, I go, what was it like to be a session musician back then? He goes, you mean, you mean, what was it like to be the session musician? He said, there wasn't any session musician. Right. It was just, just before it happened. Uh-huh. You know, like the wrecking crew, all of that kind of shit came yeah. after yeah, that. Uh-huh. You know, arguably the first session band might have been Cropper and the boys up in Memphis because they beat everybody by a month. Uh-huh. You know, uh-huh. and then Detroit snuck in behind it. You uh, know right, what I mean? Right, I uh-huh. You know, but there was, you know, it wasn't like that. Yeah, you know, it, it just kind of it just unfolded like that. Well, this guy delivered. Let's get him. Uh-huh. Which. Let me go ahead and finish the great rock Please. and roll misconception. Yes, let's do that. So, uh, Earl gets a call about Fast Domino. Right? Oh. Kaz is recording, I think, Fat Man, and uh, I think Bartholomew may have been around. I'm not positive. I don't know if he was around that particular day, but he gets a call from he gets a call from Kaz. And he says, what are you doing? Classic guys. He says, well, this and that. He goes, I need you down at the studio. He goes, we got a drummer in here. We're trying to record a record with, with uh, Antoine Domino. You know, he says, this guy's not swinging. He's like, all right. He goes, I'll give you X amount of dollars if you come down. Okay. So he goes to the studio. Now, this is Earl telling me this. He goes, now, you know, they just told this kid he's got to go. And he's been doing this for a minute. So he, he's probably a little pissed at me, you know. <laughs> you know, And he's, he gets there and he goes, and I'm hearing, like, the kid's leading. He says, and I'm hearing fast going, ding, 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 you know. He goes, well, there's no wonder it's not swinging because he's not swinging. There's nothing about it swinging. Right. You know, he goes, but I knew if I was going to get my money, and he had called me and said, this guy's not swinging. I'm going to swing. Uh-huh. So, um, Fats, can you let it call me? Now, you know Fat Man is sped up so he could sound younger? I didn't know that. Okay, well, sp- slow it down a half step. And, that's what and you'll hear what it really sounds like. Okay. And so, you know, he tilts it. Uh-huh. You know, in the piano. So that's like the first time, quite by accident, that a straight is played against a swing. Uh-huh. And he said, it was no denying when you heard it. Right. He goes, but he goes, my, my hand of guy, he said, when they told me when I needed a drummer swinging down there, he said, he said, I had no idea, number one, it was going to do that. He goes, and number two, I had no idea I was going to have to do it for the next nine years. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and like, because he's like, I love that. Man. Yeah. And he goes, it's that tension, you know, right. that, that it, you know, and that's what I'm talking about, getting in the heads, you know, oh. of, of other drummers, you right. know. Right. I, it's like, they I do a lot of things, but there's one thing that's common. When you hear where my snare hits, it drops right where Earl's did every time. Wow. I've gone in his head. That's where it drops. Some weird, weird place that you can't think about it. Mm-hmm. You just got to know it's there. Yeah. I call it the tap dancer drop, man. <laughs> you know? It's interesting. 
And uh, it's funny, as an interview I was listening to, just give you a break, there's a, uh, there's a Red Tyler interview in the Pogan Jazz Archive that I was listening to. And it's very funny because he's talking about Earl Palmer and he said, you know, they're sort of talking about the scene then early on with Dave Bartholomew. And, and he said, and it was a it, the, the sense you get out of the comment is really funny. Earl Palmer left town, and they were never able to replace him. He was like, "Yeah, it was basically over after that," <laughs> right? <laughs> Which is really funny because that's so early on. <laughs> Red decided it was over. Like, oh, it's over. You know. Oh yeah. <laughs> the, the, that, that combo. He's like, "Well, we got a couple other guys," and he and he proceeds to list the three other greatest drummers that you know know But he's like, "They right. weren't really," uh, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Very funny story. Right? Now, <laughs> the, the, there's a great. Did I tell you this about my left hand? Uh, so no. I'm I'm like out in LA already, and I'm still struggling getting my left hand to open up. You know, with class, you know, to uh, do do different kicks and do whatever I want with it. I'm uh, struggling with it, so I. You know, it's one of these days where, you know, I was around the union. You're close hand, so this is on the, the high end, the snare. No, snare. Snare, snare yeah, side. Yeah, you know, snare, and, yeah. and that's one thing I learned from Earl. You know, when you're doing just the drop snare, yeah. that's one thing. But if you want, you know, like like all these guys work on syncopation, they think that's funky. That ain't necessarily funky to uh -huh. me. There's nothing more funky than spacing the notes a little bit. Uh-huh. You know, that is funky. Yeah. And that's, you, you just, you can't teach it. Yeah. You know, um, whereas it's apparently this, but it's really this. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you can't teach it. Um, okay, so I'm struggling and I, and I talked to him. I said, man, you know, I can't get my, my left hand to just light up. You know, I just feel like I'm forcing every time. And he goes, Maybe you know he's gonna be like this. You know, like you get an airplane and you start taking out and your ear get jammed up and you, man, you you fucking chewing gum. He's got this analogy all set up. Ready? And you chewing gum and, and you dying shit. You can't get your ears to go free. He goes and and you finally give up and then you hit a certain altitude. Yeah. You can hear. I was like, yeah, that's what it's gonna be like. That's how it's gonna happen. I'm like, all right. Less than a year later, one night I'm playing. If you want, like a super lightning fast tempo. Uh, it just happened. It just happened. Uh -huh. And I'm all excited. I can't wait to see you. You know, and it hadn't been that long. Uh -huh. Month, two months, three months. I said, man, it was just like you said. He goes, what? I said, man, you know, the airplane, fucking you know, ears jamming on me. Oh, all right. And I was like, yeah, man. And I looked down and my left hand was there. He goes, man, it's good. It's good. I said, I said, man, I'm fucking 21 years old. I said, when did it happen for you? He goes, oh, that's just something somebody told me. I always had use of my left hand. <laughs> so <laughs> it's like crush. So yeah. you were, so you moved to LA when you were 21? You were already there? I was 22. 22. Actually, okay. 22. 22. And uh, so we didn't get through this. But you had your studio here. You locked up the studio. You just mentioned the name of the guy that got you that, out. This there. is still Ben Delgadillo. Yeah. Yeah. This is still when I was going out there because, you know, I was a real calculated guy. I had to have a place. 
I had a girlfriend that just moved out there, so I was going to hang with her. Uh, I see. Do some, you know, that was the first trip to the Union. Then it was the move just before my, uh, I was still 22, yeah. Because 82, 83, uh, I mean, 83, 84 season was the who that thing. I came back. That was quick. You see, like, a lot of people think this is, like, calculated. Let's say this is a Tuesday. I'm calling Aaron Neville that night. We're cutting it on a Wednesday. Ronis from Florida comes in Wednesday night, and it's through the roof by fucking after the next game, Sunday. So uh-huh. this this all happened, and, and then it's already, like, October. Uh-huh. So the football season's almost over. Right. You know, like, everybody thinks it's, like, this big... You know, it wasn't like mapped out. Uh-huh. <laughs> it was right. like, go, go, cut, cut. I like that, you know. I mean, I remember standing there with the football player going, no, bro, you got to forget. Who the I want this? You know, I mean, my voice is what you hear mostly on that chant. Uh-huh. And they were wimping at first, and I'm shoving them in the shoulders and shit, trying to get a performance out of them. But this is all happening organically. Right. Now the early recording of that, where do you get? Where do you hear that? Oh, it's hard. I know they play it on the radio a lot. Did it? Uh, I guess you could find it. You could probably YouTube the, uh, one of the early videos, and it's always they're always lip syncing to the record. Oh, that's funny. You know when they're out of David Drive with the stupid who that hats on uh-huh. and all that. Yeah. But uh, the actual studio video was lost at WWL. But I think somebody put up a copy that they had. Somebody had. Uh, yeah, uh-huh. but it's you know. It's not the same. So basically, you had a girlfriend in LA. This is where you. Yeah, oh, I had girlfriends everywhere. <laughs> you but know? you picked that one. You yeah, <laughs> I picked that one for uh, going out there. So I hung out there for a while, and then I came back. You see what happened with them was, you know, although I was very young, I I created the illusion of somebody who was well into the business, even though I guess I was. You know, I don't know. Uh-huh. But to me, I felt like I didn't know anything. Uh-huh. But to this guy, who had only played guitar in his bedroom, he was one year my junior, uh-huh. he thought I was like, you know, the center of the music scene uh-huh. in New Orleans, you know. And I came back from a gig in Boston with the show band shit. Uh-huh. I couldn't turn down the money. Two-week engagement on Cape Cod right, in right, a condo. Nice, nice yeah, I'm going. Yeah. Wintertime, only locals. But it was great. Um, when they were shooting uh, Planet of the Apes earlier that year and they hadn't just deconstructed the statue uh-huh. halfway in the oh, ground. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. Like so I, I actually saw that. That's great. You know? <laughs> but, uh, so I came back from that to the May 3rd flood. Remember May 3rd flood? I heard about it. You heard about it? Yeah. Well, Before I got here, I I'm like... I'm like, man, where are we? Laying? I'm like, where are we? I couldn't figure it out because it all looked like water. And I started seeing houses, but I still didn't put it together that it was flooded. And the captain said nothing about it. And so I literally got out of the airplane, went and got my baggage, and I walked outside. And I went to a cab, and I said, 669 noon, and I get in. The cab driver goes, How do you propose we get here? We get there. Uh, I was like, What do you mean? I said, You want directions? He goes, Maybe the whole city's underwater. I was like, fuck. And the guy goes, look, I got you. And we literally went down to the, and you know, that's a great story aside from all this. 
But he took me on a levee all the way, and I and I walked the rest of the way on a levee with my bags. Wow. <laughs> he drove on a levee. Wow. So that was the day I came back. That evening, my girlfriend here cooked lasagna, and she said, Jean, her little sister's boyfriend, is coming, and he's dying to meet you. He's been bringing equipment over here all day. I'm like, what do you mean? It's like, he's a guitar player. He wants to play for you. Uh, oh, no. You know? And I'm like, is this really coming, you know, is this coming down like this, you know? And, uh, you know, the door opens, and he's, like, preparing himself, like, in a room. Like, he's very uncomfortable. Very awkward, you know. Motherfucker walks out, this fucking handsome guy, you know. He's got an amplifier set up pointed at the kitchen table. And I'm like, look, you can play guitar, but we're gonna do it just for a second. And uh, and then we're gonna eat, okay? You know, he's like, all right, I just wanted to play you a couple of things. He literally goes over, puts on a King Crimson record. And starts playing, you know, not that, not that, you know, all this shit. And I, and I just went over and I said, play something of yours. And I used that line that I'd heard a couple of years before. I said, those guys ain't playing your music. Play something of yours. You know, I, I, I think music. I, I think music all the time, man. You know, and, and I'm really in the, you know, like telling me what he's into, Miles Davis and all this. I'm like, look, man, I got a four track over my house. I say, come by tomorrow. Here's my car, your right hand car. Here's my come by tomorrow. I'll let you use it. I got a drum machine. You can keep time with that, you know. Just make me some demos. How about we do it that way? Uh, make me some demos. Let me see what you can because you know I could always use somebody to play on the jingles and stuff. Uh, you know? uh -huh. I gave him the four track. He he called me like five days later. He said, I got some stuff for you to hear. And I said, I'm not available. You know, I'm really put them off yeah so it ends up being like 14 days um between the time that you know that happened and he comes to my house with the four track with the four track set up and he's mixing right down the little mixer the task can mixer I, I loaned him and i went and got my two track in the studio i made a mix and that's what we got signed to electrophone wow okay so this him, guy was him he was fucking incredible. Wow. He was like, he immediately, I like, I mean, I, like one day I'm telling him, look, and this head has to be out of sync. And these cannot be engaged or else you're going to go, whoop. You know, when you do that, you're going to start fucking my heads up and it might magnify. Mm -hmm. So the one that's recording has to be out of sync. Flip uh. this switch. You know, like I'm explaining the tape machine to him. Right. And then, and like, you know, two weeks later, he's not only got it, He's like throwing over to this other machine. He's got this old night reel to reel and throwing it back and doing all of this shit. Uh, and like, you know, got a backward track on a song. Wow. You know, wow. I was like, yeah. This kid's a little smart. Hey, smart guy. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, uh, and so we get signed, you know? We get signed. Okay. And we have to cut some demos. We got Jim Hill who we met in them. We, you know, you think that the record company 
says, you know, how about this guy who produced Plimsoll's Wall of Voodoo, you know, all this. You, you, you think that that would be the way? No. Ben wants to play basketball. Come on, fat boy. Let's go play some basketball. We go to Pasadena. We're playing in a pickup game. And there's these guys. And he's like, hey, man, y'all need some more? You know, you draw. You know? And I'm like, you know, whoever got me, I was like, look, I can't shoot. I can pass them. Uh -huh. And so I just pass them. As soon as they find out that you can't shoot, you just pass them. When they realize that, then your game's over. They just go at you all the time, right? So here's this guy, like 6'4". And you know, you know, it's pretty far into the game, so you know everybody's name. Uh -huh. And uh, and I make this joke. I do like this, and he doesn't move, and I go up and I make a basket. And the next time we go down the court, I go to go. I, I do like this, and he puts his hand on the ball and goes through and catches me on the side of the mouth with a fucking elbow. Oh wow! And I win. Man, Jim, I thought we were friends. We just met him. Okay, wow. So, man, I thought we were friends. He's like, man, you all right? You all right? Uh, dude, I, I mean, like, he caught yeah, he me. He really got it. He got me. Man. I mean, I was bleeding out of the lip. And it's like, he goes, hey, man, who are you guys, man? Uh, well, we're just a couple of musicians from New Orleans. We got Howard Thompson, Courtney, you know, and like, he's like, I know Howard Thompson. He goes, I'm a producer. Oh, wow. <laughs> and he's like 25. Uh -huh. You know, but he's white years older than us. Yeah. Know? And it's like, uh, and Ben's like, who have you produced, man? He goes, well, the one singing, the one speaking right now is uh, Million Miles Away is a single that I produced. And he goes, in a Mexican radio. And Ben goes, you produce all of Voodoo? <laughs> He's like, oh, man, look, we got to get some new demos together. So anyhow, we come to New Orleans. Ben wants to do them in L.A., I want to save money because I'm the one footed the whole thing with all the money I got from who that the cash out money, uh, which is like 85 grand. Uh, right. um, so this is now like top of 83. I'm well in that way. Uh, 83, 84 season. No, this is the top of 84. So I'm still 20. I'm still 23. All right, and um, and uh, he got killed. We came, he didn't want to come to New Orleans and, you know, like some weird shit happened. Uh, we were tripping Halloween night and his brother thought he had left his jacket at a club and we were all fucking out of our minds and partying and he had actually left it in my rental car and uh, when Ben wouldn't let him use his newly restored 240Z uh -huh. to go checked the bar to get his jacket. He got pissy and he, he went, like Ben was getting heavy with this chick and he went and stood over and brushed his teeth. And well, Ben goes, man, what's wrong with you? Like, get, they're getting an altercation. He grabs a 36, 30-06 off the, uh, off the wall and blew his head off. Whoa. Yeah. Wow. So that was like, you know, all, you know, any possibility of that. So I am basically moved back in the wall and flipped out for a good six months. You know, um, pulled a Brian Wilson, just stayed in my bed. Uh, you know, I mean, you know, it's, it's a real weird dynamic because it's like, you know, it's like the first person that I talk to every day for like a year uh -huh. got disappeared. Right. And there's also the monetary aspect. So you're feeling guilty because you're thinking about all the money you invested. And like the demo money was real good. And they just stopped the check. 
You know, wow. like, you know, it's like yeah. the first thing they said was, "Okay, Ben's gone. Who wrote the songs, Carlo?" You know, because we were signed to two guys. The two of you, yeah. Yeah, and, and they were like Jim Goodwin, who was working with us at the time too. From the call, he's like gone again. Ben wrote them all. Is Carlo singing in? Wow. That wow. was Ben. So they just... That was that. Yeah. I said, look, I'll tell them I'll send them the check back. You know, they, he goes, they're just going to stop payment on it. So, you know, I had it in my fucking hand. And if I'd just gone to the bank... If he did his cash, yeah. that would have made you depressed. Yeah, but, you know, so you think, but I lost my friend, so why am I thinking about money? And you're going through all this shit. What matters to you? Yeah. You know? I mean, never mind the fact that I, I live in expenses and I've spent $30,000 in the last nine months out here. You know what I mean? It's like all of these things. But yeah, he checked out. Another thing is we picked up a head of steam because of all the people I knew from doing what I did. There was like still disc jockeys in clubs with, with records, you know. Uh -huh. But they all had a cassette player uh -huh. or a reel-to-reel. -reel. Uh -huh. So I'd bring them reel-to-reels of this guy's music, and I'd go in the club and I'd go play it. And I knew every DJ in every fucking club and they'd play it. And he hit like an occult level. And so we ended up playing 1984 World's Fair at, at Jed's Lookout with a little opening band called the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was great. And I mean, he's like, they're so good. You know, he was like flipped out. I'm like, dude, you got a little local hit. Nobody knows who they are here yet. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm like, he goes, man, once they walk on stage, you know, like, just, you're going to do your thing. Just, and he was, I remember, because, like, Jed's lookout, here's the stage, and there was a net. You're on the message, and there's a net that went to the rails. So right in front of you, there's nobody, but there's fishing. And then you're looking down at people here, and the place was packed. And uh, it was our, our homecoming from California, and it just got inked, you know. <laughs> and, and and fucking, you know, everybody was there. You know, we love you, Ben. Congratulations, Ben. You know, shit like that coming wow. out of the audience. And, and uh, you know, after this high energy, because his shit wasn't that high energy, you know, after this high energy gig, he starts, like, you know, a song, and they were just like, <laughs> you know, he was like, and watching him get the confidence as, you know, that song went, the next song went. And we literally had like a fucking 12-song set. Uh-huh. And the Chili Peppers had like a 16-song set, but their songs were all a minute long. Okay. Oh, <laughs> you know so what I mean? Yeah. Well, listen. What else? We've only made it to 25, and I'm going to have to go soon. I have to I, go. I got to go. So let's, can we pull another chapter up a little later, like in a week or so or something? Sure, or? if you're not bored with me yet. No, no, not at all, not at all. I just think we, you know, we got to your early 20s and we just managed to escape the surface of LA, so let's pick it up later. Are you feel all right about that? Yeah, I'm fine with that. Cool, man, because it's been great. I mean, thanks. It's just like, uh, 